Good morning. morning. Let's begin class with prayer this morning. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study. We ask that your spirit will join us, that we'll have a greater insight and wisdom, and that your love will transform us, we pray in your holy name. Amen. Uh, A couple of announcements. Uh, First, we're asking our online class to help us out. And as you know, from the years we've doing this now, we have a large um, library of various blogs, videos, um, podcasts, and other things. If you're going through something and you find uh, uh, a particular section that you think was really pertinent to a particular topic, whatever that topic might be, just go to, uh, to the link on the website, email us, and say, hey, this lesson and this place or this video was really good about this topic and we're going to make a topical index so you let us know where i find it and we will collate all that we'll make a topical index so you can go to the website and say i want to know something about mark of the beast well then you click it and here's all these things that that various resources where you can find that so forth so when you're perusing the material if you find something you think's really like that that should be indexed just email us and we'll make the we'll make the uh, links for it and then for those uh, who would like, we've got a, some bumper stickers <laughs> for our ministry if you'd like. They're out here locally, but online we can send those to you. These are traditional bumper stickers. And I wanted to tell you, because I want to explain how this one works, because no one told me how it worked and I had to do it twice. Um, <laughs> this isn't one you just, you, when you peel it and you slap it on there, you don't leave it. You then have to peel back and the white part stays on the outside of your windshield, basically, on, or, or anything you stick it to. So I didn't realize that. I thought it was just a whole clear thing and you left it there but it's not you have to peel back and then so if you don't push it down hard then and you peel back you'll leave half of the image not all of it (laughs) so push down all the elements first and then peel back if you decide to use that one okay so our lesson today is lesson eight in the uh, book of job and the title is innocent blood innocent blood and uh as you hear the title does it like start your mind down certain trails immediately In Scripture, whose blood is the innocent blood? And when Scripture refers to the blood of the lamb or the blood of the sacrificial animal, is that to be taken literally like red corpuscles, or is that symbolic, metaphorical? I think you guys know that's not literal. So what's it referring to? What's the blood symbolic referring to? Leviticus, the life of the creatures in the blood. So blood in general is symbolic of life. In this case, the life of Jesus. And was Jesus' life a sinful or sinless life? Okay. A sinless life. It's important to get this straight. So the blood of Jesus then is symbolic of the sinless life of Jesus. Now why is this important? Well, how was the blood of the sacrificial animal in the symbolic teaching lesson to be used. What was happening with it? It was being distributed throughout the system. That's what was happening. And if the blood is symbolic of the sinless life of Jesus, that teaches one thing. Think of the implications. We're going to come back to that application throughout the lesson, but let your mind start hopefully reaching into your databases, pulling out the, uh, the various Bible references and, and making those links. If you think of just the blood of the animal, not the blood of Jesus, the blood of the sacrificial animal... Did it have any impact on sinners? No. I was listening to Christian radio the week of Easter this year, and somebody called in and asked, what was the purpose of the sacrificial animals in the Old Testament? And they had an Old Testament theologian and a New Testament theologian on the show, and and this is their answers. The Old Testament theologian said, the reason in Leviticus 17 is that there has to be punishment with death for sin. And so in Leviticus 17, when the animal sacrificial system is being established, it says, Leviticus 17.10, And any Israelite or alien living among them who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from his people. For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourself on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. See, blood represents life, and there has to be punishment of death for sin, so therefore an animal had to take the punishment and give its life, its blood, so that the offerer could live. That was the substitution, what my former professor here at Moody used to call the exchange of life. Lewis Goldberg called it that, the exchange of life. The animal dies, the person lives, so that's the reason for Old Testament sacrificial atonement. Let's let your mind think on that for a minute. We're going to unpack it further. The New Testament theologian. A couple of things in the New Testament. In Luke's Gospel, it talks about how on the night that he was betrayed, 
Jesus was having the Passover meal. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. That is, it's the death of Jesus that comes about because of his blood loss, among other things. His blood loss, as well, uh, as well is the thing whereby he was our atoning sacrifice. His death is required for us as well in order to save us. Paul talks about it in Romans 5.9, much more than... Having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. And so it's very much the same principle. In the Old Testament, the death of an animal was required to take care of the human sin problem. And now we have not the death of an animal, but the very Son of God who dies for us. And so the loss of blood is the very thing whereby he succumbed on our behalf. Are you thinking? Are the theologians I just read correct? Is this view that was put forth on... Moody Radio, a very um, rare and uncommon view in Christianity. No. Now, this is the predominant view. This is what the vast majority of Christians are taught and think. First off, was the blood of the animal necessary at any time in human history, old or new, to save sinners? No. The writer of Hebrews in the New Testament, and the New Testament scholar might have thought of this, This is what Hebrews says. The gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. I I thought a New Testament scholar might have thought of that. It's pretty clear to me. Animal sacrifices could never at any time in human history take care of the sin problem because they cannot cleanse the conscience, transform the heart, renew the character, which is required to save sinners. God in Old Testament times made this clear through his prophets, Isaiah 1. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough burnt offerings of rams, the fat of fatted animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fathers. Plead the case of widows. And then in Micah 6, 6 through 8, you know this one. With what shall I come before the Lord? Shall I come with the, and bow down before the Lord, the exalted God? Shall I come with burnt offerings with calves a year old? Will please the Lord with a thousand rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn, the fruit of my body? He has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord does require of you to act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. I think though, again, Hosea 6, 6 says it most clearly. Hosea 6, 6, I want your constant love, not your animal sacrifices. I would rather have my people know me than burn offerings to me. Okay. So even in old Testament times, the, the message was there. God spokespersons were telling people, Yet here we are, 2,000 years after Christ, still confused about the blood. What is God saying through his Old Testament prophets he wants? What do you hear him saying he wants? Our love, which is, he wants what? A, tr- a transformation in us. He wants to heal us. He wants to fix what's broken in us. He wants us to have a new heart and right spirit. Yeah, that's, that's what he wants. This is seeing the blood then as life the life of the perfect, sinless Son of God. The blood, and what does blood do in a sacrificial animal? What does it do, or any animal? The blood circles, it circulates, it circles. You remember the symbols in Scripture, Ezekiel 10 of the places? Uh, the principle of love is the principle of giving, the never-ending circle of giving. And when you break the circle, you sever the circle, what happens? Death. And this is what was being taught, that when you break the circle cut the circulation, the animal dies. When you break God's design, his law of love, it results in death. They don't see the blood, these theologians, and I I emphasized it with my intensity when I read it, they don't see the blood as representative of the sinless life of Jesus. They see the blood as representative as the death, the death of the sinless offering. They are, they are operating through that imposed law lens, thinking that God's law functions like human laws, system of rules, no inherent consequence, requiring an authority to inflict punishment upon. This is how they see it. 
And that's why they think it is the death of Jesus, is what the blood symbolizes. But what did Jesus himself say? John 6, 53. I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day. For my flesh is real food, my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. How do you hear those words? What was Jesus actually talking about? Do you think when Jesus used these words, eat my flesh, drink my blood, he was purposely connecting his words to that sacrificial system? They were, they were, they were, uh, you remember some, some of the sacrifices, the priests would eat the flesh of the sacrificial animal? Do you think he was, he was wanting them to make those connections? When, when John the Baptist said, here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, were they, was he connecting Jesus with that sacrificial system? And so, so how do we understand then this ingesting of flesh and ingesting of blood? Are we to be partakers of the divine nature? Yes, we are. And what would the divine nature symbolically be? You could maybe say, we are to, divine nature, we are to be partakers of the divine life. Well, what's the symbol, symbol of life? Blood. Unless you partake of me. But it's a problem if we insist that the blood represents death. Think that through. If the blood represents the death of Christ, then when he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, under the design law of you, we realize that the condition of sin is a condition out of harmony with God's design. We are dead in trespass and sin. This condition is not, not how God constructed us to be. No human being born of a sinful mother and father could remedy this condition or fix it. So Jesus came, took upon himself this terminal condition through being incarnate, the humanity that he received from his mother. But Jesus also, because his father was the Holy Spirit, had a sinless mind, which could, which he could exercise to overcome the infection, the temptation, being tempted every way, just like we are yet without sin, and develop a perfect character thus restoring God's design back into the species human. Thus the blood is symbolic of the sinless life of Jesus, the perfect character that he developed as a human being. So to ingest his flesh and drink his blood, what does it mean? Well, think about physical meat. Physical meat is made up of molecules, which are nutritional building blocks that actually become part of your physical body and give you energy and resilience and nutrition and so forth. Jesus is, according to Scripture, the living word. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And as the molecules of matter in physical meat become the building blocks to your body, so the truth, the living word, the ideas, the concepts, the facts, the truths that Jesus reveals in his life become the ideas, the building blocks of our understanding, our beliefs, that ultimately become part of our character, winning us back to trust in God. The truth will set you free. Dispelling the falsehoods, and as we trust him, we open our heart. In Romans 5.5 5 it says, he pours his love into our hearts. And thus the Holy Spirit takes what Christ has achieved, reproduces it in us, and we become partakers of the divine nature, the life of Christ. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. This is partaking, eating the flesh, the truth, winning us to trust, and receiving, via the Holy Spirit, the life of Christ. It's a literal transformation of the person, as I understand it. Sunday's lesson, so keep that in mind as we go through, we'll build on that. Sunday's lesson, first paragraph, says, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar had a point. God does punish evil. Unfortunately, that point didn't apply to Job's situation. Job's suffering was not a case of retributive punishment. God was not punishing him for his sins as he would do with Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. First off, first question. As you read something like this, as you're you're processing, as you're you're being a a critical examiner, somebody who is is skeptical in the sense of a microscope, a telescope, someone who looks very closely to discern truth from error, as, as you're reading this, do you first go, who are they citing here as authorities of truth? Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. 
they had a point. God does punish. So the point of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar is that God punishes evil. That's their point. Now, if you read the book of Job to the end, what does God actually say about the point that Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar were making when they were talking about how God works? God says they were wrong. God tells Job that these guys were wrong. Does part of your mind go, wait a second, why would we be quoting three guys that God himself said were wrong about him as having a point about how God works? Some part of us should be very skeptical. Well, didn't the lesson last week make the point that God, that it wasn't retributive punishment? Yes, not for Job, not for Job. Job wasn't being retributively punished, but God does do retributive punishment. I see. Yeah, yeah. So what does it reveal? This sadly reveals that the authors are operating under the, again, imperial law construct, the human law construct, viewing reality through the lens, thinking that God functions no different than you or I, sinful, sinful beings. Therefore, they conclude, and, and, and if understand, so we can be compassionate to people who see this, if people believe God's law works like our law, I understand why they think God has to punish. Because if God's law did work like our law, and God doesn't act to enforce his law, then it's not fair. There's no justice. So he has to act if that's how God's law works. The entire controversy is a confusion over God's very law, which is an expression of his nature. He's the creator. He builds reality. His laws are the laws upon how things work. So if sin is punished by God, though, okay, notice, notice where the logic leads. If they're right, God must punish evil because God's law works like our law. And Christ became sin who knew no sin. He became our substitute. Then who do you predict they will teach kills Christ? They will teach God is the source of executing Christ for justice sake. And I I don't have the quotes today because we've gone over many, many times. But in fact, many Christians do teach that at the cross, God killed his son for justice sake. And that's in Seventh-day Adventist articles, Review, Ministry Magazine, 27 Fundamentals. They teach, some, some theologians in the Adventist church also teach that God killed his son for justice sake. Why? Because they have the role law concept. Because I ask you, can you find anywhere in inspired sources that teach that God killed Jesus? No, you won't find it. All inspired sources teach that God didn't lay a hand on his son. Jesus died by a combination of the physical abuse and his father letting go and not intervening to stop what was happening. Christ's own testimony. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yes. Question. Yes. In Isaiah 53, where uh, the Bible says something like, it pleased the Lord to crush him. Yes. What would you say that refers to? What's that? Explain that. Thank you for bringing that up, because that's often one used as a proof text for people who take this view that God is the one who did this. And if you actually look at the Hebrew and look at it, uh, anybody here speak more than one language? I don't. But I understand from those who do that when you translate languages, that many words have more than one meaning. I will give you an example in English. Have you heard the word rendition? The word rendition can mean two, like, two renditions of a movie, two renditions of a painting, two renditions... But it can also mean the CAA black bagging somebody and taking them out of the country and putting them to the, the, the thumb screws and, and torture. You know that word, that's also a legitimate meaning of the word. And, and you can check it out. I, 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 was, I like that one because it's so diversely different. Those two meanings aren't even close. Many times the words have subtle connections, but sometimes they don't. In the Hebrew there, it can mean he was pleased to crush him, or it can mean he was pleased that he was crushed. Okay, And depending on your view, the one view, then God was doing the crushing. The other view, God was pleased he was crushed. Well, why would he be pleased he was crushed? Under the design law model, it would be very similar to this. You have a child who's got leukemia, dying of leukemia. You have another child who they've done the bone marrow test on, and they're a bone marrow match. And they can donate blood or bone marrow that will save the life of your child. Now, you don't want the, the healthy child to have to suffer the pain and the agony of going through a bone marrow withdrawal. If you don't know what that's like, it's very painful. But you're pleased that they do so because it results in saving the other child. And so God was pleased that he was crushed because it was the only mechanism whereby God could achieve his goal of fixing what Adam did to the species in order to bring life to all of his children that he loves. So that's how I understand what that means. Yeah. 
Also, the passage says, we esteem him. That's another great point. Same passage of Isaiah 53 that you were referring, another verse in that same whole total description said, um, he was, um, he was, he was, Bruised for our iniquities. He was our iniquities, um, crushed for our sins, yet we esteemed him or considered him smitten, stricken by God. And so he took our condition upon himself, suffered what this condition would bring in order to bring healing and transformation, yet we would misunderstand and believe that God was the one doing this to him. And that's Isaiah 53, 4. So thank you for that. Second paragraph says, At times of great tragedy... Have not those who believe in God asked similar questions? Why, Lord, did you bother to create me at all? Or, why are you doing this to me? Or, would it not have been better had I never been born than to have been created and face this? Any concerns about the assumptions built into these questions? There are assumptions built into these questions. Let's see if we can unpack those and see. First question. Why, Lord, did you bother to create me at all? What's the assumption in that question? How can I create him? No, the assumption is why did you bother to create me, the individual that I am? This is an assumption that most Christians hold, that each one of us as individuals were created directly by God with divine power from God. Is that what the Bible and inspiration teach? Well, now, does the Bible teach that in that uh, human beings, the human species, the human species was created by God? Absolutely. Where and when? In Eden, whenever that happened. And what was the condition of Adam and Eve when God created them? Perfect and sinless. Does inspiration teach that God had a direct divine hand in the creation of any other individual human being? The answer is yes. One, Jesus. And what was the incarnation of Christ? God directly intervened. And what was the condition of Jesus? Sinless. He was also sinless. Does the Bible teach that God gave Adam and Eve an ability in their perfection in Eden before they sinned, the ability to procreate, the ability to create beings in their image? Did he give them that ability? Yes. Yes, he did. Did God take that ability away from them when they sinned? No, they still possess that ability. The Bible teaches in Psalms 51, 5, we are born in sin, conceived in iniquity. Does God create sin and create iniquity? Well, you, I didn't hear an answer to that. No. Thank you. God does not create sin and create iniquity. No. Then why are we born in sin and iniquity if God is the one directly doing it? The reason we're born in sin and iniquity is because Adam and Eve corrupted themselves and human beings possess an ability given to them by God to create beings in our image. And any parent can look at their kids and see there's a lot of themselves in their kids. Isn't it true? And I can tell you with epigenetics, what we have in epigenetic science now, the decisions you're making throughout life alter your gene expression, and you not only pass along gene sequences, you actually pass along how those sequences are instructed to express themselves. So people who live, um, shall we say, wholesome lives, healthy principles, um, overcome various uh, besetting um, desires in their life before they have kids will pass along advantages. People who indulge in destructive and self-indulgent behaviors before they have kids will pass along vulnerabilities. They alter their gene expression. And this is well-documented science now. But that's not something we should have doubted. If we read scripture, we create beings in our image. When a man rapes a woman and she becomes pregnant, is this an act of God? Is God creating here? Do you know much of the Christian world thinks that's yes? So who decides then, if you put all this together then, who decided... For each one of us, myself, I'll talk about myself, me, the individual that I am, who made the decision that I, the individual that I am, would be born? My mother and father. If my mother and father had made one, the decision to avoid intimate relationships that one month of my mother's cycles, just that one month, I wouldn't be here. There was one of them 
and one sperm combination only that would make me. I have a brother and a sister from the same parents. They are not me. Anybody have any siblings from the same parents? Are they you? You get it. Every month, a woman ovulates a new egg. That new egg has a new combination of genetic material, and the sperm that is given, again, same thing. And who made the decision for that, for those to join? Our parents made those decisions. Whether those decisions were made in love, in marriage, or whether it was violent in rape, someone else made the decision, but God wasn't making that choice. Yes? I just respond to Psalms 139.13. You form me, you, for you formed my inward parts, you wove me in my mother's womb. Some people could see that maybe as God making that person. I love you bringing that up. That's brilliant. I love that. Okay, so let's take that. And because this is, this is a great example of, of biblical inspiration that we have to use our good judgment to say, okay, do we take this level four and below? The Bible said it. I believe it. That settles it. It's just a declaration of how things work. We don't ask questions. Or do we understand, okay, there's truth in that, but what is the truth in that? So we can ask some questions before we actually unpack what I think it means. If we take it very literally, which some people do, God formed me and my mother's womb, knit together my most parts. Does that mean if a child is born with spinal bifida, congenital heart defects, God was having a bad knitting day? See, think about it. No, what it means, what it means for some, here's what it means for some, and, we're, and I was about to get to these conclusions without your text, but what it means for some is God wanted them to have that problem. It was God's plan and God's design for this particular child to have Down syndrome and this particular child to have a cardiac defect and this particular child to have spinal bifida. And God, God did that to them. And, and then who are we as doctors to interfere? I mean, we, we don't want to interfere with the divine plan. Why would we try to fix a, a congenital defect if God did that? Serious problems here. Not only that, we are born in sin and conceived in iniquity. If God's knitting us together in our in mother's womb, then He's knitting together sinful beings. He's creating sin. Further, which is more powerful? God's divine energy or a bottle of vodka? Which is more powerful? Well, if God is using divine energy to knit together, how come kids are born with fetal alcohol syndrome? His divine energy overruled that. Doesn't, does it? So how do we then understand it? God is knitting together under the umbrella of his sustaining life-giving energies and, and the design laws and protocols upon which his universe runs. Laws of health, laws of physics, laws of thermodynamics. All of this is being held together by God, so we read laws of inheritance, the sins of the fathers passed down to the third and fourth generation of those who, so forth and so on. But Jesus himself said, you know, the, the rain and the sunshine fall on the wicked as well as the righteous. These are God's energies sustaining. Life comes out of the ground when you plant seed because we give it life. No, God gives it life. But who plants the seed? Who decides it's corn in this field rather than wheat? The one who puts the seed in. Okay? So yes, God's. there's no question we don't have life inherent to ourselves. But we do have a gift that God has given us. And if you think about how God operates... When he gave Samson strength, supernatural strength that wasn't normal, did he control Samson's use of it? When he gave Solomon wisdom, did he control Solomon's choices? And when he gives us procreative abilities, these are his energies being manifested through, like Samson's strength, our choices. So yes, God's involved by providing the the resource materials and energies for this to happen. Without him, it couldn't happen. But he isn't directly creating new life like he did in Eden out of dirt, sinless and perfect. And it takes, it takes a huge distortion out of the character of God to realize this. I have many patients that come to see me and they're very distraught. Why did God want my child to have schizophrenia? Why did God create my child with mental retardation? And this, this comes up commonly when people have this view from a text that they don't actually process through all the other texts. So I really love you bringing that up. Thank you. So you're saying that it's the parents that create that child. That's what you're saying. The egg and the sperm. Who made the decision for the two individuals to have those intimate relationships? But the parents didn't decide for that child to be spina bifida or schizophrenic or a normal healthy child. That is correct. But the parents are the ones that decided to unite themselves, and they can only bring the resources they have to bear. So a parent with, say, 
uh, a genetic def- defect for Tay-Sachs disease. Jewish, Jewish people frequently have this. And they both get together, and they both have the defective gene, and they share their genes together. They're the ones making that decision. God is not doing it, but that's the, they, we can only bring the resources we have to bear. So a person with, uh, let's, let's make it something a little easier, colorblindness. Colorblindness. There's a single gene defect on the X chromosome for colorblindness. Uh, women are rarely colorblind because they have two X chromosomes. And so, um, but they, if their father was colorblind, they've got one defective X chromosome, uh, excuse me, gene on the chromosome for colorblindness. And they have a boy child. The father donated a Y. The mother donated the X. 50% chance that child's going to be colorblind. Did God make that child colorblind? No. How did the child become blind? Because mother could only donate the genetic material she possesses. She can't donate material she doesn't possess. Is this, is this uncomfortable for people? Yes. I want you to be right. I'm, and don't get me wrong. I'm asking sure. this question. Sure. I'm genuinely interested. Sure. I'm trying to be confrontational. No, no. I, I appreciate the questions. I'm, I'm looking at John 9 with okay. the blind man. Yes. And uh, the disciples asked Jesus, was, why was this man born blind? Who sinned, him or his parents? Yeah. And, it, and Jesus says it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Okay. Is there an exception here, or am I misunderstanding it? No, I don't think so at all. I think Christ is saying so. This person was born blind. Why? Not because of a sin of his parents. And if, by the way, if my comments earlier that the parents make the decision for their for our unique individualities by choosing to have relations with each other and donating the material they have that bring forth us and our unique personhood. If I was suggesting that, that that's an act of sin to do that, I, I wasn't saying that. So, so I just want to be clear that, that Bible text you're referencing now, no, we are born genetically defective because of Romans chapter, what the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, all nature groans under the weight of sin. Okay, All nature has been changed because of its disconnect from God's life-giving presence and Entropy is happening, and there are genetic defects that have entered all forms of life on planet Earth. And these defects we possess within ourselves, and we pass those along to ourselves. So this man was born from a sinful mother and a sinful father. He was born in sin, conceived in iniquity, it says in Psalms 51. Okay? And that constellation of events, no active choice to sin on himself or his mother, which is what the apostles' question was. Who did a wrong behavior, wrong act, bad deed that caused this punishment upon him? That's what they're asking Jesus. He's saying neither, but that doesn't mean he's born sinless or a, a sinless being. No, he's still a sinful being, corrupt, biologically defective, and this was permitted so that I may show that I have the power over these problems and I can fix them. And so he fixes his blindness to show that the, the source of all life is now on earth and any defect we have, whether it's spiritual, physical, or otherwise, God is the source of the solution for all those problems and it was manifested in his life. Yes? The implied statement or belief has been that God created him blind so Christ would come along and heal him. Yes. And that's not... And it's not stated that way. It doesn't say God created him blind. No. No. This also goes back to the question of the miracle births. There, there is only one birth in which God intervened to cause the birth to happen in the sense of the, 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 uh, the pregnancy itself. And that was the incarnation of Christ. All the other ones, those were women who had a physical health problem. Perhaps the husband did, but sometimes we know it wasn't. For instance, Sarah, Abraham didn't have a problem because he had a child with Hagar. So he, he wasn't infertile. Uh, Sarah was infertile. And so she had a physical health problem in her reproductive organs And God performed a miracle for her that allowed her reproductive organs to work. But Abraham and Sarah still had to have intimate relationships for that to happen. Abraham provided the genetic material. The Holy Spirit didn't come down and cause Sarah to get pregnant, like in the case of Jesus. Same thing with uh, Hannah and, and, uh, and Samuel's mother. She had a reproductive problem, a physical health problem, like blindness or deafness, but it was her reproductive organs. And God healed that and allowed her organs to work right. And, but yet she still had to have relationships with her husband for her to get pregnant. Many people think, well, those are miracles. God, God, God actually did those. No, he didn't. He fixed the health problem and allowed them to have relations with their spouses and then they got pregnant. And every one of those... Pardon? Yes. Yeah. I, I like the question um, this brother is asking. Um, I, I serve as a chaplain and so I see these things on a regular basis where infants are born dead. 
and I have to to be in, you know, with parents at these difficult times. And many times they're asking why. Why is this happening? Um, and of course some are hungry with God, you know. Um, I believe that God is big enough to, to, to defend himself. I, I don't need to defend God, you know. But I realize that we only see a part of the story, you know. There's, there's a bigger story that we, we cannot see, that only God knows. And I, I speak of John the Baptist. He was related to Jesus Christ. Jesus was around doing all kinds of miracles, healing people, raising the dead. John the Baptist, if there was a man who was committed to God, it was John the Baptist. And he was in prison. He was in a dungeon. And Jesus didn't even visit him. You know, and even after he sent people to Jesus, Jesus still didn't visit him. And Jesus allowed him to be killed viciously in prison. Why? That's just a part of this. So allowing him to do it, was it the same thing as Jesus causing it to happen? No, I'm not saying that. No, so, so I'm just clarifying your point. So sometimes these things happen, but they're not God doing these things. Right, right, yeah. right. I'm not saying God is doing it. We only see a part of the story, you know. I see the miracle of everything that you're saying about um, genetics and everything being that at this point in history, the fact that we can even be receptive to God at this point is a miracle. So think through, though, the implications. If it's true, the other, which is the common view in Christianity, and an Adventist church should know better, but, but we've been infected with this idea too. The, the common view in Christianity that God is the one actively creating every pregnancy. Uh, when 10,000 Arab men in the, in the Sudan a few years back raped as many of the women as they could find because they purposely wanted to have more children with Arab genetics in the Sudan, should all those women turn to God and say, thank you, God, for creating life in me? I mean, it, it is absolutely the ugliest thing we could say about God to put him in charge of these pregnancies when they happen, other than through his design that he gave us abilities. But we can abuse those abilities. We can abuse them terribly. And that is not just the ability to reproduce. This is our intellect. We can abuse that ability. Any ability God has given us, we can abuse and we can exploit. And so... This is one of those areas where, where it really says ugly things about God to put it back on him. The, the, second, the second question was, and this is, look at the assumption in this one. Why are you doing this to me? What's the assumption? This is what the chaplain was speaking of over here. Why are you doing this to me? The assumption is if something bad's happening, it's God doing it. That God is the source of inflicted pain, suffering, tribulation. God is sovereign, directly causes all things to happen. This is a common view in, in Christianity too. When you see these great tragedies happening um, in, in the world, God was doing something there. Therefore, God wants it to be this way. The first three chapters of Job tells us that it wasn't God. That's right. And, and, and think this through. Well, well, people go, yeah, but, but he, he, he took back the restraining hand, and therefore it's just the same as him doing it if he took back the re- No. Notice what he gave Satan permission to do. He gave him permission to do anything Satan wanted other than kill him. Meaning, remember what Satan offered Jesus at the temptation when he took him, uh, the third temptation? What did he offer Jesus? He offered Jesus all the kingdoms of the world, wealth and power. Satan was free to give Job more wealth and more power. God didn't restrict him to doing harm. God didn't choose for this pain and suffering to come upon Job. He just didn't choose to stop what Satan was going to do to him. And then, how about this? What do you think about this? Job 10.7. Although you know that I am not wicked, and there is not one who can deliver you, who can deliver from your hand. Job 10.7. Although you know I'm not wicked, and there's not one who can deliver from your hand. What falsehood is Job struggling with in this passage? That God is the one we must be delivered from. That's his struggle. Who wants us to think that we need to be delivered from God? Yes. And what theologies, ideas are currently taught in Christianity today that teach the same idea? Their doctrines are designed, functionally, what they're doing, they're designed to protect us from, hide us from, or deliver us from God. Can you think of any? So this is how it's commonly taught. And, and by the way, it's not that these metaphors are, are wrong in their rightly understood way. They're taught wrong. 
So the, there's a beautiful metaphor of covered with the robe of righteousness. Christ's object lesson, Ellen White says, when we accept Christ, our thoughts are brought into unity with his, our desires are transformed to be like his, we live his life. This is what it means to be covered in the robe of righteousness. Notice that description is not a covering, it's an internal transformation. That's perfectly beautiful. That's not how it's taught. How it's taught most of the time is that we're covered with the righteousness of Christ. So when the Father looks at us, he cannot see our wickedness. He can only see the righteousness of his Son. We're being hidden from the view of the Father. Why do we need to be hidden from him? David prayed, Father, search me and see the wicked way in me, creating me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Why do we need to be hidden? Because we've got the view that God is the one we need to be protected from. Jesus died to pay the Father so the Father won't kill us. Covered by the blood so the Father will see the blood and realize payment has already been made and he'll relent of his angry wrath. The blood applied to the record books in heaven to erase the record of sins so the Father, when he examines the record books, won't find anything he's required to punish us for. Having Jesus by himself or along with Mary and all the saints pleading to the Father to turn the Father away from hurting us. The place of eternal burning is the last place you want to be. There's another one. All of these, all of these doctrines are common, common, common. And notice what they're doing. They're saying to you, God is a person you can't trust. You don't want to be failed. We have to do something to protect us from and to be delivered from the Father. The problem is the Father. It's not sin, guys. The problem's not sin. Sin's fine. God would just get some self-control and not ha- lash out and hurt us. We could live eternally for, in sin. There's nothing wrong with sin. There's something wrong with God who will punish you for it. This is the common teaching. Fourth paragraph. It says, There is difficult irony here. In contrast to what his friend said, Job was not suffering because of his sin. The book itself teaches the opposite. Job was suffering here precisely because he was so faithful. The first two chapters of the book make that point. Job had no way of knowing that this was the cause. And even if he did, it probably would have made his bitterness and frustration worse. Did anybody, like, question that? I I was incredulous. First off, why didn't Job know? Why did Job not know what was happening to him was coming from an enemy, not from God? Why didn't he know? Did God reveal to Adam and Eve in the Eden, in the beginning, there was a conflict over his character and as an enemy who was the source of sin and death, who was trying to corrupt and destroy? Yes, he did. What prevented Job, Job from knowing this information? Was God seeking to prevent Job from knowing? Was God hiding the information? Was God restrictive with the truth? Or is Job's very struggle to understand evidence that there is a controversy with an enemy who's telling lies that make it hard for us to comprehend the truth? Does this give us insight into New Testament passages like this one? Romans 16, 25 and 26. Now to him is to able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God. What is the mystery? When, according to this passage, is this mystery being made known? Paul says now being revealed. In other words, in Paul's day, but through what? Paul says it's now being made known through what? Through the prophetic writings. But when were the prophetic writings written? Way before Paul's day. So how is it that way before Paul's day, the the light about the truth that was hidden was written, but they didn't understand it until now? Was God hiding it? God was sending it through his prophets, but they weren't seeing it. Why weren't they seeing it? Because there was this imperial law construct. God works like we work. Mentally tainted. And they needed Jesus to come. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. This is how we work. This is our method. And thus we can look back on the prophetic writings now and have clarity on what they truly mean. How about this one? 2 Corinthians 2, 7 and 8. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom. A wisdom that has been hidden. Hidden by whom? And that God destined, notice, God destined this wisdom for our glory before time began. If God intended the wisdom for our glory, is he the one hiding it? No. What wisdom would this be? What wisdom would God intend for our glory? Would it not be the truth of his character of love? Keep going, verse 8. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And what does the Bible say that God's glory is? His character of love. That's what it teaches. 
So why didn't they understand it, these, these rulers of the world? Because they accepted the lie that God functions like human governments. They couldn't accept this self-sacrificial love. Yes, Wendell. This goes back to the point of, of applying Christ's understanding of his mission back to the Old Testament and not doing the reverse. We often come with preconceived ideas of what the Old Testament sacrificial system is and then apply it to what Christ did rather than That's right. using the revelation of Christ of what he is like, what he said about himself, not what he said about his father, and then applying it back to the Old Testament saying, aha, that's what it meant. Brilliant. That's exactly right. And so, notice though, this wisdom is destined for our glory before time again. How does this wisdom help glorify us? Because there's one of the design laws called the law of worship, where by beholding we become changed. We actually, neurobiologically, are transformed to become like the God we worship. Worship a God of love, like Jesus revealed, and you actually change yourself. Brain structure changes. We can see this on imaging scans. You worship a dictator God, an authoritarian God, you become more abusive to others. How about this one? Ephesians 3, 8 through 11. Although I am less than all of God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery. What mystery? The mystery of Christ, which for ages was past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. Why was this mystery that is to be administered through Christ kept hidden in the ages past? Did God hide it? If he's sending Christ to reveal it, was God the one hiding it? No, this is Satan's lies. This is the great controversy. Started in heaven, obscuring the truth, the subtle distortions. God's character has been warped. Thus we wage against everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought to Jesus Christ. Continue on with the quote. Ephesians um, 3.10. His intent was that now, through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished through Christ Jesus our Lord. What wisdom is to be made known through the church? That I believe it's the truth about God's character of love, which will enlighten the rulers in the universe. This is God's eternal purpose. When you hear eternal purpose, does other eternal kind of passages pop into your computer? Do you go, wait, Revelation 14, an angel, first angel. He had what kind of gospel? An eternal gospel. A, 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 a gospel, a good news, a message of good news that has been eternally true. Eternal, not for just eternity future, but it's been true in eternity past. For all eternity, this has been good news. It's the eternal good news of who God really is. This is the eternal purpose to reconcile all things under one head. On Monday's lesson, it says, On the other hand, the Bible does talk about the reality of human sin sinfulness and human corruption, which brings up a valid question about the meaning of innocent. If everyone has sinned, if everyone has violated God's law, then who is truly innocent? As someone might say, your birth certificate is proof of your guilt. Okay, and this is, again, level four and below thinking. At the most, this is, uh, this is a level four with an imperial law construct that operates like us. Let's make. Let's just break it down very quickly. Or the doctrine of original sin. Yeah. Which is even lower than that. If an HIV-infected man and an HIV-infected woman got together and had a baby born HIV-infected, what did the baby do wrong? Nothing. The baby is innocent of choosing the condition. Okay? That's every human being since Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve chose to corrupt themselves, and every human being is born in sin, conceived in iniquity. We have no guilt at all for being born with this condition. However, we are guilty of refusing the remedy provided by Christ if, in fact, we do refuse the remedy provided by Christ. And we do have a fatal condition. And we do. Yes, we are dead in trespass and sin. This condition leads to death, just like HIV. So this is really, I think, but that only, that's design law. See, HIV, it's a health condition. It violates the laws of health. It's corrupting and destroying the system itself. And without a remedy, it results in death. Okay, that's our condition from sin. It's deviant from God's design. And Christ came to fix what Adam broke. The last paragraph said, says, um, Job knew that what was happening to him was not something that he deserved. 
Let's look at the moral level. This, this, is, this is level four below thinking. The levels of moral development, level one, reward and punishment. It's right if you're rewarded. You're wrong if you're punished for it. Um, therefore, Job didn't do anything wrong, and he's being punished, so he didn't deserve it. Level one. Level two, marketplace exchange. Um, punishment is only appropriate if you don't fulfill your side of the bargain. You've got a, a bargain. Uh, say this prayer every day for 30 days, and God promises to expand your lands and give you more blessings. You've made a bargain with God. Well, Job fulfilled his bargain. He even offered extra sacrifices that weren't his. Therefore, he didn't deserve this punishment. Level three, social conformity. Punishment is appropriate when one deviates from the group rules. Job didn't do that. It's not deserved. Level four, law and order. Punishment is proper when one breaks the law, and the punishment inflicted is appropriate to the crime. Job didn't break the law. Therefore, he didn't deserve to be punished. Notice this idea of not deserving. It's level four and below. What Hebrews 5 says is immaturity, milk, not meat. Still focusing on the elementary teachings of acts that lead to death, the do's and the don'ts. Level five, love for others. Love only exists in an atmosphere of freedom, and therefore, one who loves grants others genuine freedom, even if it's the freedom not to love in return. In a world where love is not supreme, pain and suffering happens to innocent people who do love others, because they're willing to sacrifice self for the good of others, even their enemies. Movie that was just released this weekend called Hacksaw Ridge is about the true story of Desmond Doss. Does Desmond Doss deserve the right to love others more than self? And what transpired by his love for God and others in this world where love does not reign supreme in all individual hearts? Did Desmond Doss lose out? Because he loved others. Did his faithfulness to God's methods of love ultimately not only win for him personally, in his personal character development, but won many others to God's ways? Hmm. Level six, principle-based living. Understanding the design protocols for life. Understanding what happens when one deviates from those design protocols, whether one chooses to deviate themselves or just happens. So if a tree falls on your house and crushes your leg, do you deserve to have a broken leg when a tree falls on it? That's what happens. It's the law of physics. That's level six thinking, principle, how things are designed. You're out of harmony design. You step in front of a car and get hit by a car, do you deserve broken bones? If you're shoved in front of a car by somebody else and you get hit by the car, do you still deserve broken bones? If one drinks water contaminated with toxins because some chemical plant is dumping into the river that you're getting your water from and those toxins are toxic to the human body and you get cancer do you deserve cancer that's what happens when you drink toxins whether you know it or not that's what happens it's not a punishment it's not an infliction see deserve can mean this artificial sense of deserve you've done something to merit or earn it or it can mean the natural consequence of what happens when you violate uh, laws of physics laws of health and so forth how do you hear it? Level four and below, which is imposed law, which means it's all artificial, or design law, which means it's a natural consequence of being out of harmony with design. Does the worm deserve to be eaten by the bird? Does the bird deserve to be eaten by the cat? Why does it happen? Why is this happening? Because Romans 8, all nature groans under the weight of sin. God's Planet Earth is no longer operating in harmony consistently with his original design. A a law of sin and death has infected God's creation, and these things are happening. Does the truth deserve to be revealed? The truth of, of God's methods versus Satan's methods. Does the truth deserve to be revealed to sentient beings so that they can make intelligent choices of which method they prefer? Level seven, understanding friend of God, not only love for others and understand his design, but understand and participate in his purposes. God is working to resolve the sin problem, to eradicate all the deviations from his design and to restore his universe to perfection. Did Joseph get what he deserved? Did Joseph stay loyal to God and did God allow events to happen for a larger purpose? What was the larger purpose? You have that larger view? Remember, Joseph himself said it. You intended this for evil. God permitted it. God didn't cause it. He permitted it for good. What was the good? 
preservation of the pathway of the Messiah. Bingo. There's a controversy going on. Once Adam and Eve sinned, the whole human race is going to die, except Jesus comes and provides salvation. Without Jesus, the whole human race is gone. We're dead. Satan gets busy and tries to obstruct the coming of the Messiah. First attempt, really the big first attempt, was the flood. At this point in history, there's only one righteous man left on the whole earth. Only one. All the rest of the people on earth are not willing to work with God. God acts to keep open avenue for Messiah. But after the flood, God narrows down his avenue and, and makes it known that he's not going to work with all human beings for, for the avenue for the Messiah. For that purpose, one family is going to be now the avenue for the Messiah, the descendants of Abraham. So Satan can now hone his attacks to this one family. And if he can destroy the descendants of Abraham, he destroys the avenue for the Messiah. And so what happens? He brings, I believe, a famine to destroy these people. God, foreknowledge. He didn't cause the brothers to do what they did, but he permitted it to allow and orchestrated the events with the dreams and all the other things that he did to allow Joseph to be in a place to protect the family and keep open the avenue for Messiah. This is brilliant. And did Joseph also find happiness and health in his life later on after 13 years? Yes, it was a hard 13 years, but he trusted God. And was the story of Joseph... An object lesson has inspired millions and helped millions come to a better knowledge of God. So there was larger purpose than just what was happening in the life of Joseph. And as an understanding friend, Joseph said, hey, I'm willing to do what you need for this larger landscape of a cosmic battle going on. And I'm willing to go into the breach, into harm's way for you, if that's what's needed, to reach someone for your cause. And thus we see in the life of Job, God had a greater purpose in mind than Job's personal health and welfare. God is concerned with millions of people throughout history who have needed the lessons of the life of Job so that they aren't duped into a false system thinking of a health wellness gospel that if you you do the right things, God blesses with wealth, and if you do the wrong things, then God punishes. The life of Job disabuses us of that whole false gospel that a righteous people can have bad things in an evil world happen to them and they're still right with God. One more point, we'll we'll do a Tuesday's lesson. Bottom of Tuesday's lesson, and it says, we face similar challenges today. A six-year-old dies of cancer, is that fair? A 20-year-old college girl is pulled from her car and sexually assaulted, is that fair? A 35-year-old mother of three is killed in a car accident, and and that's fair. Um, What about the 19,000 Japanese killed in 2011 Tohoku earthquake? Where were all 19,000... Was all 19,000 guilty of something that made this a just punishment? If not, then their deaths were not fair either. This is based on such a warped understanding of reality, I can't even believe it. God's reality is that he created, get your mind around God's reality. He created human beings to live how long? What's his design for our life? life? Eternally. His design, never die. But sin infected his creation, causing pain, suffering, eternal death. Without Christ, all humans would die eternally. If someone experiences the first death, what the Bible and Jesus called sleep death, is that the punishment for sin? It is not the punishment for sin. This is not it. God, this is act, in fact, this first death is an act of grace. It's an artificial state that God has permitted to exist to truncate the damage that sin would do and allow the plan of salvation to be carried out. Further, From God's perspective, every human being in the history of planet Earth has died young. Whether it was Methuselah at 969 or an infant at age one, consider a rope from our sun to our Earth, 93 million miles. And and that's a, a finite distance. The accurate metaphor would be an infinite rope, but our minds can't even really get around that. So we have struggles with 93 million. But just imagine the rope 93 million miles long, and every inch on this rope... Is, is, an, is a represents one year of life. Is there a significant difference between 969 inches and one inch on a rope that's 93 million miles long? There's no significant difference at all. Everybody dies. Now, send that rope for infinity. Every human that dies, dies young. Okay? God is not primarily interested. His primary concern is not how many years we live on this planet right now. His primary concern is fixing what's broken in our hearts and minds so that we will live for all eternity. That's his primary concern. And we miss this over and over again. We look at things like this, an earthquake and some people died. That's not the primary concern. The primary concern is where their hearts transformed, that they raised in the right resurrection and they live eternally. That's the primary concern. First Testimony 432. This is a vision for those who value those. I was shown the saints reward 
the immortal inheritance, then I was shown how much God's people had endured for the truth's sake and that they would count heaven cheap enough. They reckoned that the sufferings of this present time were not worthy to be compared with the glory which should be revealed in them. If you prefer a Bible passage, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17, in closing, therefore we do not lose heart, Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Our gracious Heavenly Father, how deep has been our misunderstanding of your nature, your character, your methods, your purposes, and what you're trying to achieve. We ask that your spirit will take all that Christ has achieved in our behalf. Win us back to trust. And in our trust as we open the heart, take what Christ has achieved, reproduce it in us, give us new thoughts, new motives, new desires, new insight, new wisdom, that the secret wisdom of your character may be known to us and we can be lights in this world. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.